This is the Phelan and Myers 2 for 20 with the Willett, Phelan, Myers and Rotts Wealth Management Group of Jannie Montgomery Scott. Jannie, a member of FINRA, SIPC, and the New York Stock Exchange, maintains a presence in Duluth with their office at 6340 Sugarloaf Parkway, Suite 130, Duluth, Georgia. Good morning and welcome to Phelan & Myers 2 for 20. This is Scott Phelan. I'm here with my business partner today, Kevin Myers. And we're going to do things a little bit differently today than we've done in the past. Instead of having a uh, third-party guest come in and interview them, um, I'm going to interview Kevin. And what we're going to talk about today is how to avoid the top investor mistakes. So this is a talk that he and I have done over the years. We thought that it might be of interest to a lot of our listeners. So good morning, Kevin. Good morning. Um, so why don't we jump right into it? So uh, one of the top investor mistakes that we see over the years is using bond funds for income. Can you expand a little bit on that? Yeah, well, and especially this became even uh, more relevant, I believe, last year. Um, and what we mean by that is um, most people, I think, over their investing life that are around nowadays are used to, you know, kind of the late 70s, early 80s, right, where interest rates were in the mid-teens. If you could get a mortgage you know, under 10%, it was an amazing thing. And so <clears throat> what happened then is ever since then, over the past 40 years, interest rates have kind of been going back down. And where that really plays out is sort of the concept of with bonds, as interest rates go down, the value of the bonds go up. And so for those 40 years, they were not only getting interest on the bonds, but the values were going up as rates went down. The problem is, is once we got to zero, there was only one other place that bonds our interest rates could go, which would be up, which meant that the, the value of the funds went down. And so especially in a fund, you don't have a set uh, maturity date that allows you to know when you would get that principal back. And so as you know, we were, what, since 08, 09, had been at pretty much a zero interest rate environment, we knew that there was only one place to go was up. And last year, we saw that in a meaningful way where the Fed raised rates to such a significant amount that the average bond index, right, the AGG, which is sort of a mixture of all the different types of bonds out there, was down well over 13 14% last year yep. um, with no date that they could recover that, that money. So in a rising interest rate environment, I, I would think, and you, you would want to have short-term, probably individually dated bonds. So with bond funds, there is no maturity date. So interest rates go up, the value of the bond fund goes down. When am I going to get my money back? Where if I have a three-year bond and it goes down a little bit in value, it's okay because I know I'm going to get my money back in three years. Correct. Yeah, yep. you can treat them a lot like people are used to treating CDs yep. uh, when you own the individual bonds, where a fund is just a mixture of hundreds of bonds. Yep. And and so bond funds kind of lead to something that you and I see a lot in, in our business, and that is you know, kind of asset allocation. By asset allocation, I mean, you know, just kind of a generic, hey, let's have 40% in bond mutual funds, let's have 60% in stock mutual funds, and if I need to draw you know, $4,000 a month of that 4000 40% is going to come from the bond fund, 60% is going to come from the stock funds, and everything should work itself out. Right. Yeah, in theory, right? But right. The, the problem is, is, and what we've seen in uh, last year and what we saw in 0809 is when there's true market dislocations, right, where asset allocation, the whole design of it is meant to try to smooth your ride out. But the problem is, is when there's the big major market events, that's actually where everything kind of correlates. And the whole concept of when bonds uh, go down, stocks go up and vice versa, 
doesn't apply, right? Everything goes down and everything goes down in a pretty meaningful way. Uh, 08, 09, again, you know, bond funds went down, stocks went down. Last year, the 60-40 portfolio that you were alluding to was probably one of the worst performers. There were articles about, is this portfolio dead, right? Because, uh, you know, bond funds down 15%, the stock market down 20 to 30%, depending on what types of stocks. And so, yeah, just sitting on asset allocation, it didn't do what most people expected it to do last year. Right. Right. And then, and so what you look at really is a sequence of returns. Correct. Okay. So as you're accumulating money, okay, if you have some, especially early in your investment career, some negative returns early, you know, on an investing and some positive returns down the road, and then flip those returns and, and, and say, okay, what if the opposite happened? I have positive returns early in my investing career and negative returns later. Doesn't really impact you as you're accumulating money. Where it can really impact you, though, is if you're taking, again, using the same example we did before, you know, 40% in bonds and 60% in stocks and pulling money pro rat out of the account, if that account is down 20 or 25% and you're still pulling that same $4,000 a month, I mean, it can quickly implode the account. Right. Because you're pulling money out of a declining asset, right? It's almost the equivalent, I guess, you know, in a roundabout way of, you know, if I have the value of my home going down and I'm continuing to pull equity out of it, you know, it 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 it, it can deteriorate very, very quickly. Exactly. So the way around that, do you want to jump into that? The way around that and the way that we kind of deal with that issue? Yeah. So it sounds simple, but it's really just dedicating your assets, but tied to your um, income needs versus just some magical formula of, you know, 80, 20 or 60, 40 or anything like that, um, that doesn't apply to you. Right. So the first thing is understanding what your income needs are and then setting aside years worth of income that aren't going to have that market fluctuation that you were referencing. Right. So for us, a lot of times the first uh, one or two years might just be an all cash um, set aside, right? And then years three through five or three through eight, just depending on each person, uh, we can use individual bonds and just sort of ladder those like you would a CD and even CDs right now, you can do that. And so what you're essentially doing is just building in that time frame. It's kind of like the concept, if you're 10 years out from retirement, you know you have plenty of time to let the markets recover. When retirement, um, you don't have that time, so we build it through dedicating assets to your income needs for those first few years. So, so to go back to that example that I used before of, say, $4,000 a month coming out of my portfolio. So in that example, that's $48,000 a year. Maybe we have $48,000 in cash for the first year's worth of income, $48,000 in a one-year CD, so that'll mature in a year to provide years two worth of income. 48,000 and a two-year CD that'll mature to provide three years worth of income and on and on to the point we've got, you know, three to seven years worth of income and very, very conservative, if not risk-free investments. Correct. So then that allows our growth portfolio to continue to grow. And, you know, I mean, there may be some volatility with it, but that's okay because we know we've got a long-term time frame. Correct. Yeah. And the way it works is if you have those five years dedicated, right? If you have a down year like we had last year, all you do is burn through one year's worth of your income, right? And you don't do anything. If it's an up year, what you do is you take that stock investment that went up, you harvest the gains at that time, and then just replenish the year that you just burned through, right? And so it gives you the flexibility of, of you know, when you're going to actually recognize those gains. Yep. Okay, so let's jump to out-of-bond funds and asset allocation. Let's talk a little bit about 
um, uh, let's talk a little bit about tax law, uh, tax laws. So one of the things that we see a lot is large capital gain distributions. I'll give you an example. Recently, I was looking at a, a portfolio. It was about $3.1 million. They had a $250,000 capital gain distribution out of that portfolio. That Ouch. is a significant number. So what I always recommend, particularly, well, one, be very tax efficient in non-IRA accounts, or as tax efficient as you can. A lot of time that'll mean owning individual stocks or ETFs, not actively managed mutual funds within a non-IRA account. If you can, it'll avoid it. Um, but then also at the end of the year, you know, if you own 30 stocks, you know, some, uh, you know, presumably one or two of those stocks are going to be down in value. So if you can harvest some tax losses at the end of the year, obviously that's a very valuable thing. Um, the other thing that we see from time to time is uh, individuals giving uh, cash to charity. Um, you know, instead, of, instead of giving a highly appreciated stock, they may give cash instead. Um, if you can give a highly appreciated stock that maybe you have so much gain in that you're a little bit reluctant to, to, uh, to sell it, if, if you decide that you did want to sell it. So you can give that, say, $10,000 worth of highly appreciated Coca-Cola to a charity. You get the same tax deduction that you would had you given cash, but you get rid of a highly appreciated asset that if you sold, you'd have a lot of gain in. And Frankly, if you want to, if you want to take $10,000, the same $10,000 you would have given to charity and turn around and buy some Coca-Cola stock back, at least that Coca-Cola that you're buying has a much higher investment basis in it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's, that's one thing that we run across. The other thing that we run across from time to time is individuals that um, are taking a standard tax deduction giving to charity, which a lot of people don't realize if you're taking a standard deduction and you give to charity and it's not enough to exceed that standard deduction, you don't get any tax benefit for having given to charity. Now, once you turn 70 and a half, you can give money out of your IRA and keep it off your tax return. Okay, so um, uh, I know the new rule is 73 before you have to do your required distribution, but they kept it from the days of when it was 70 and a half that you had to, to uh, do a required distribution. So if you're taking a standard deduction and you're not giving enough to charity to exceed that standard deduction amount, I would absolutely consider, should I give some money out of my IRA? And certainly, once you turn 73 and you're forced to take a required distribution of, say, pick a number, $30,000, and you want to give 10000 to your church, that 10000 you won't be taxed on. The 20000 that you actually took and kept in that scenario, you would be taxed on. So... Those are just a few tax things that we see from time to time. Um, uh, you want to jump into and kind of hit on, you know, some of the other things that we see in terms of like wills, powers of attorney, stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, I think the main thing is first just make sure you have all three of those documents, right? Make sure you have a will, a power of attorney, and the medical directive. I think beyond that, then you want to kind of just make sure that you revisit those documents on some sort of regular basis, right? So a will especially, make sure there haven't been a divorce, right? Make sure that the ages of your children uh, aren't in a, in a far different situation where some of the metrics you may have put in there don't apply anymore. Um, that one I would say probably needs to be updated less, less often, um, but like medical directives and power of attorneys, those usually we recommend getting those refreshed every three to five years, um, mainly just so that the folks that are you know, being handed those documents feel comfortable that those are still the decisions and still the people that you want making, dis you know, making choices on your behalf. Yep. 
Yep, I agree. Keeping yep, keeping the wills and the powers of attorney, and especially if there's been a significant change in your life, updating your will so that monies are go to the individuals that you want them to go to, I think is absolutely important. Um, okay, and then you know during this roller coaster that we've really had over the last fifteen months or so, you know there's been a lot of hand holding that we've done with a lot of our clients. Um, do you want to hit on some of the things that you see in terms of bad decisions that investors can make based on getting too emotional about the market and, 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 you know, the stock market and the bond market? Yeah. So it's kind of well known that the market goes in cycles, right? And with that, you know, emotions usually tie to that. So, um, and they run both sides of the spectrum, right? So usually at the beginning, you're excited, you know, things are going up, you know, and then at the top of markets, there's usually euphoria, right? Most people assume that there's no way that you can lose money and that everybody's just getting rich, right? And so once that turns, you get fear, you, you get all sorts of different negative emotions that come in. And that whole ride, if you will, of emotions drives poor behavior. Studies have shown that literally um, having somebody manage your money can, can be the difference of between 8 to you know 4% return profiles, right? So you can literally have a haircut of almost 4%. And most of it is just because <clears throat> most of the buying and selling is done around those major market cycles, right? At the top, most people buy, and at the bottom, most people sell. And it's actually just the opposite of what you're really supposed to be doing uh, if you have a process. And so for us, that's a lot of what we try to do is just make sure that one, we're aware of where we're at in those cycles, and that we also pay attention to how emotions can drive decisions. And so there's actually a whole field now that's been built out around that called behavioral finance. And what it does is take macroeconomic um, kind of theories and then run that against the psychology of humans, right? Because, you know, macroeconomics, the first two things they teach you is that everybody involved is after their own self-interest. I think we all agree that that's probably accurate. <clears throat> the second thing is that all of those people make rational decisions, that's probably the one where I'll push back and say, hey, guess what? We're probably not making <laughs> rational decisions. And so some of those theories um, don't always hold up right. uh, the whole time. Yep, yep. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, when the market's down 20%, nobody wants to get invested. If the market's up 20%, everybody wants to get invested. Where if it was just the opposite and you were looking to buy anything else, you know, a, a, I don't know, new suit. And they said, hey, the prices of suits have gone up 20% this year. You're probably not going to buy one. But if they discount them 20%, you want to buy them all day long. So yep. it's counterintuitive. It absolutely is. Well, and that's a prime example. One of the con one of the core concepts of behavioral finance is a, a thing called anchoring. And, right, and it's where we are actually introduced to a number that we then make decisions off of. And so <clears throat> kind of to your point, like uh, with stocks as an example, a lot of times people will purchase a stock at a certain price. Let's just say it's $50, right? And then their future decisions around the stock are anchored around what they purchased it for, right? So if the stock is down to $30, they say, hey, it must be a bad stock, I should sell it, right? And that's just based off the fact that it's lower than what they bought it for. The problem is, is they didn't take a look at like, why is the stock down? You know, has anything fundamentally changed uh, you know, to where they should be selling it. They just a lot of times execute it. Um, I think the Dow is another one where we hear those headline numbers like Dow, you know, 30,000 or Dow 35,000. And so a lot of times when people hear it's been higher than what they were comfortable with, they say, whoa, the market must be over, overbought, right? I must sell it. Um, and the problem is, is, you know, our brains are wired to make quick decisions, right? And use the data that's available. The problem is, is sometimes we're not using the right data and we're using our emotions instead. 
Yeah, I'll give you a quick example. Back in, uh, gosh, it was probably 06, maybe, well, no, I guess it was 07. Um, I had a financial advisor call me and asked me to meet with a client of his. This guy had invested $100,000 in a technology company. That stock was worth $25 million. And I guess the high had gotten to about 110. It was trading at 90 or 95. And the advisor wanted me to, you know, try to talk to him about, hey, let's diversify a little bit. And we'd come up with some ways to, you know, to minimize some of the tax liability of, of selling it and, you know, get him some income. You know, all these great, I thought it was a great plan anyway. Um, he, he said, okay, once it gets back to 110, then I'll sell it. And yep. it was about nine. It never got back to 110. Yep. I talked to that advisor probably six months later. I said, whatever happened to that guy? And he said, yeah. He said, I, he started doing some day trading. He said, I think he's got like $25,000 left. So it, it, that is a great example of anchoring. You yeah. know, it, it was here. It's now here. And I, once, it, once it gets back to this number, you know, I'll sell it. The problem is the stock doesn't know that you own it. So right. it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not ever, or it's not necessarily going to get back to that number. Okay. Let, let's talk about one last thing and that's diversification because I think, you know, sometimes we look at these portfolios. If somebody brings in a portfolio that they have at another brokerage firm and they ask us to do an analysis, sometimes when we, when we do those analyses, they'll own 12,000 different stock and bond positions, right. you know, because they own 20 different mutual funds. Each of those mutual funds has lots and lots of different stocks or bonds in them. Can you talk a little bit about what the ideal number, in your opinion, of stocks to own is? Yeah, so they've done some research around this. And obviously, diversification is important, right? If you have one single stock, there's going to be a lot of risk tied to that, right? You know, something could go wrong. If you owned only Enron back in the day, probably not a good thing. So we all know that you should have multiple stocks. The question is, you know, what is the right number? And studies show that usually when you get to anywhere between 20 to 30, right, from a statistical standpoint, you've diversified and lowered the risk about as much as you're going to, at least in a meaningful way. Anything beyond that, then, you're not really getting the return um, and the risk reduction. But what is happening is you're, it's becoming more cumbersome to be able to manage and keep up with all those different holdings, right? So, you know, it's easy to say I can identify 20 to 30 stocks that I'll keep an eye on. It's a lot harder if you have, like you were saying, you know, 200, 300, 400 different stocks. Plus, are you going to really have that high a conviction on the 303rd stock in your portfolio? Right. Probably not. There's probably going to only be 20 or 30 that you're going to want to be meaningful, yeah, meaningfully invested in. Yep. Yep. Kind of the old Warren Buffett way of investing. Yeah. Right. Yep. He he's he I think his portfolio, if I'm not mistaken, is 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 you know, the preponderance of the portfolio is less than ten stocks, if I'm not mistaken. So Yeah, yeah. that I'm not sure. But yep. another way that these build up, we were talking about some of the behavioral finance, is there's a concept called loss aversion, right? And that studies show that we feel the pain of a loss twice as much as the joy of the gain. Right. And so a lot of times from a behavior standpoint, we try to avoid it. Right. So a lot of times all these different holdings uh, stack up because you won't ever sell uh, some of the ones that you probably should have as well. Yep. Yep. Great job. Thank you. Thank you. Very much appreciate it. And um, till next time, this is Scott Phelan and Kevin Myers for Phelan and Myers 2 for 20. The information provided here is taken from sources which we believe to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of such information is not guaranteed by us. This is not an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any securities. 
Opinions expressed are subject to change without notice and do not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs of individual investors. Employees of Janney Montgomery Scott LLC or its affiliates may at times release written or oral commentary, technical analysis, or trading strategies that differ from the opinions expressed here. Investing may involve market risk, including possible loss of principal. Janney Montgomery Scott LLC, its affiliates, and its employees are not in the business of providing tax, regulatory, accounting, or legal advice. Any tax-related statements are not intended for and cannot be used or relied upon by any such taxpayer for the purpose of avoiding tax penalties. Any such taxpayer should seek advice based on the taxpayer's particular circumstances from an independent tax advisor. For more information about Janney, please see Janney's Relationship Summary Form CRS on www.janney.com backslash CRS, which details all material facts about the scope and terms of our relationship with you and any potential conflicts of interest.